0: Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem Pittsburgh studios. And now here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Well, good afternoon,
1: greetings and thank you for coming along for the Friday edition of The Ride Home.
2: It's my favorite edition of the Very
1: ride home. nice edition, of course, always a pleasure. We got much to look forward to, do we not?
2: Mhm. I yes. feel it today.
1: I feel great. Do you who?
2: Listen, for those of you who haven't been uh with us in the show the last few days, I injured my back mm. about a month ago, but very badly over last weekend. And so I missed the beginning of the week here on right. the ride home.
1: No it, more pickleball.
2: No more pickleball. I've Mm-mm. never played pickleball. But uh, now I'm on a five day course of steroids mm-hmm. and everything's right with the world. Oh. Food tastes better. Yeah, yeah. The sun is clearer. And last night I slept for the first time really a true slept. sleep a true sleep mm-hmm. Congratulations. i can't get over it Yeah, i want to be on steroids forever which no, i no, no, know no, no, listen no, no, i understand no, no, all no. the people saying that i can't do it no, it's, it's a miracle just a drug. joke it is a miracle there's drug. a dark
1: side to it I've,
2: it's very dark side uh but i do want to say that i feel terrific
1: excellent today. well there's nothing mm. like a good night's sleep i can't
2: believe how i slept mm. i forgot what it was like to sleep like that
1: Whew, isn't that a relief
2: Yes. Don't
1: you hate like when you go to bed and you're fraught with anxiety, thinking, "I know, you know I'm just you're talking yourself into a bad sleep because yeah. of the right. past history over the last exactly. X number of days. Because
2: there haven't been a good there right. hasn't been a good sleep for a long time. Well, that's very good news. Anyway, right. thank you so much for asking, John. Fifty thousand once is it too early for me to tell you? To tell tell me. You? your weekend has begun. <laughs>
1: Woo-hoo. Excellent! It's a new month. It's a Friday, March first edition of the Ride Home.
2: I don't like that it's March already.
1: <laughs> What's the problem?
2: I just feel like I blinked and February was over.
1: And okay, okay. I, I mean, mean, I'm
2: not saying that February is my favorite month, but I also want to say that okay, I don't.
1: I'm moving forward because spring's coming. You know that daylight savings time is not that far away, right? We've already That's done right. the groundhog thing. Before you know it, I mean, already crocuses, everything's popping up,
2: Kath. oh. Coming up on today's program in the five o'clock hour today, mm-hmm. um, obesity now a greater risk to global health and hunger. Okay. That is a tragic, tragic story. Yeah. We're going to hit that in the 5 o'clock hour. Also, today's the anniversary of the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. I have a personal story uh, to share about that. Also, it'll be the week in review, and uh, our friend Tim Uhoff will be with us to talk about his trip to Israel. He went with a bunch of different faith leaders, all different faith traditions, like completely different Mm worldviews they went on a trip to israel to discuss the israeli hamas conflict i cannot imagine
1: and tim was the lone christian
2: what that was like so we're going to talk to tim about that and also coming up in the four o'clock hour this or that and why we all need heretics
1: okay good (laughs) the heretic edition (laughs) of the ride home all right uh because then the world continues to revolve kath does always appreciate you with your news stories Mm -hmm. the top four at four without further ado here it is
2: as you said john it's friday march 1st excellent number one thousands of people defied the threat of arrest by attending the funeral of alexei navalny in moscow embracing one of the last remaining avenues to register their anger at president vladimir putin as well as mourning one of the few politicians capable of standing up to him the Kremlin had warned Russians against attending what it called spontaneous memorials for the opposition leader, who died in an Arctic prison camp last month. But security forces largely took a hands-off approach to the procession of mourners that made its way from the Church of the Icon of the Mother of God to the cemetery where Navalny was laid to rest. Some in the crowd, bravely, shouted no to war. Others joined in with calls of Putin is a murderer and free political prisoners. Wow. Concern remains high that people who turned out to pay their respects could face reprisals after the presidential election later this month. Putin is expected to win easily. Really? a surprise, is it? No. Uh, Analysts say the Kremlin sees a strong showing in the election, though, as a way to legitimize his rule as the war in Ukraine moves into its third year. At least 400 people, you might have heard, were arrested across Russia for laying flowers in memory of Navalny after news of his death emerged on February 16th. So for all the people who were at that funeral today, and when I saw the video of it, I, I wish that there were more people. But I'm not going to look at the people who live under that autocrat no. and tell them how they should live their And lives. I'm sure,
1: you know, KGB going by, everyone's face every, Everyone, Yes, everyone's everyone who attendance. was there
2: is now in danger. Sure. Every, every person is there. Number two. Pharmacy giants CVS and Walgreens will begin dispensing mifepristone, commonly known as the abortion pill, in coming weeks. And I still don't really know how to say that. Mifepristone, maybe, is the way to say it. Abortion pill. The two pharmacy chains said today they received certification to dispense the pills following a regulatory shift last year to allow bricks and mortar pharmacies to offer the pill with a prescription. The company said they would distribute the pill in a way consistent with state laws, meaning it won't be offered in states that don't allow legal access to abortion through 10 weeks. Both of those first news stories from today's Wall Street Journal. Number three. Two time Pittsburgh Steelers Super Bowl champion linebacker Andy Russell has died at the age of 82. Russell was drafted by the Steelers in the 16th round of what draft? What year? You have any idea, John?
1: 67.
2: 63. Oh. How about that? He played one season with Pittsburgh, uh, returning in 1966 after serving in the military. Russell was a seven-time Pro Bowler, wow. first-team All-Pro in 1975, and a member of the Steelers' all-time team, Hall of Honor, Pittsburgh Pro Football Hall of Fame. He was the team's MVP in 1971. I think only player I can remember, John, who was part of the terrible Steelers yes. before Chuck Noll came and took over
1: two-time Super Bowl winner though right
2: incredible yeah absolutely incredible um he there was a fumble recovery that he uh there was a fumble that he recovered in 1975 against the Baltimore Colts he returned it 93 yards for the for a touchdown and I'm pretty sure that record stood until just this last season oh no kidding yeah I'll have to look that up for sure but I'm pretty sure it did uh that that new story from KDKA radio and number four Weird animal story for you guys. Oh, thank yep, you. happy to bring it. A new species of sea slug has been discovered off the waters of the UK. Researchers with the Center for Environment, Food and Aquaculture Science say they originally thought it was a disgusting thing. No, they thought it was a different species, um, but they weren't sure. But there are no previous records of this type of slug in Ooh. the UK, raising questions about its identity. They have named him Pleurobronchea Britannica. It's between two and five centimeters long, and let me assure you, it is disgusting. Mm. And that is your top four at four. So would you eat a sea slug? No, I wouldn't. Would you
1: eat escargot?
2: Yes. So
1: it's not that far away. I know, know? it
2: really isn't. But when you see it in its natural habitat, boy, that's disgusting.
1: But like, say you're in the, like, Louis Zamperini. No, you were, and there's well, a cease look. Okay. All right, okay. If you're it.
2: Louisiana, Perini, right? but I'm Kathy sitting in the studio,
1: <laughs> right? But, and
2: I'm on day three of my st- five day steroid pack.
1: But you would eat escargot, delicious, isn't it, with butter and garlic? Mm. I probably would eat it. Heck yeah! You know
2: what? I've never had. Hmm. I've never had caviar.
1: Oh. Well, I don't look badly at you because... I mean, it's expensive.
2: Well, no kidding. That's why I've yeah. never had it. I had it in Russia. And?
1: Oh, it's fabulous. Of course it is. It's fabulous. People turned up their nose at it. Are you kidding me? Give me that jar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll take a quick break. Come back with Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. It's The Ride Home on Word FM. There years ago reading up a Woody Allen quote. Where Woody Allen said essentially... Ninety percent of success is just showing up. Just showing up, and I kind of thought that's—is that overstating things? I mean, just showing up. Ninety percent of success, really. Ten percent is where all the all the things happen.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, Drew Dick is with us, and we we love Drew and we trust Drew as a truth teller. He just wrote a whole book about this: "Just Show Up." How small acts of faithfulness change everything—a guide for exhausted Christians. Drew, is that really the truth?
0: I'm banking on it. Thank you, guys. Yeah, good to be back with you. <laughs> good to be back with you. Yeah, uh, yeah no, I think it, it's interesting. You know, um, part of the reason I gravitated to this topic of just showing up was I've kind of gone through a, a, a few years. I think we all have, actually, where you feel exhausted, mm-hmm. where you feel like maybe <laughs> you don't know what the right thing to do is. And at the end of the day, I think it's a spiritual principle, too that God doesn't ask that we do everything. He doesn't ask that we be the best at everything, Uh, but he does ask that we show up, that we show up for him, for our relationship with him, that we show up for our family, for our friends, for our community. Um, And so that's just kind of been something I've repeated to myself, especially when I'm discouraged or (laughs) kind of down. I just go, you know what, Drew, listen, you might not have the right credentials. You might not have the right thing to say. You may not be fully prepared. Your your heart may not even be in, you know, whatever you have to do next. But at the very least, you can show up. And that's just been a, a huge thing for me, just a kind of baseline commitment to show up for the next thing that God's calling me to do.
1: I'm into that. So was this – was there a moment? Was this a midlife crisis? Was this, you know, a thunderbolt <laughs> thing?
0: What happened? Well, I wish I could say it was a thunderbolt. Probably more of the midlife crisis. a little bit of COVID mixed in there too. Um, But yeah, honestly, for me, what was so freeing about it was just that it lowered the bar a little bit for me. Um, And, and that I thought, you know what, I can just show up, you know, maybe I, I um, can't, you know, this year, you know, do all the goals that I thought I would do um, or, you know, get in the best shape of my life or all the things that I have set out for myself but just showing up is so much of it because when you when you just go when you just show up for people when you just you know do the next thing the, it's amazing the things that follow from that and i feel like furthermore you know to, to put a spiritual dimension to this is that god blesses our small efforts right mm-hmm. um even and and i look through all scripture and i see that it's like all the characters in the bible that did these amazing things often they did something very small You know, it's like I think of the loaves and the fishes story, right, where the boy just kind of goes, okay, here, I'll share this. And then Jesus multiplies what he gave to do what what that little boy could never do. And I kind of see the same situation with us. When we just show up and give, you know, God what we can, he does the rest. He multiplies our meager efforts to do what we could never do on our own. So that's encouraging to me. Excellent.
1: Okay, speaking of little boys, what about your son and his name?
0: (laughs) That's right. Yes, yeah. so I have a eleven year old boy. Well, he's turning twelve next month, Excellent. and we named him Athanasius, and that is a mouthful. Wow. My goodness, you should <laughs> you should hear them try to say his name, like at the doctors or the dentist. Or, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Athanasiosis. I've heard all kinds of pronunciations. I don't blame him. It's an obscure name. So, basically, when I was in seminary, I remember studying about Athanasius, who's this fourth century. Uh, well, now they call him a saint, but he was this fourth century uh, Christian who got up at the Council of Nicaea, an ancient council of the church, where they are getting together to discuss the, the nature of Jesus and his relationship to the Father. And Athanasius was the one who stood up at the Council of Nicaea. He probably would have been in his late 20s, Max. And he argued persuasively for the divinity of Jesus from Scripture, correcting an ancient heresy called Arianism. Anyway, um, so I was, I was reading about this guy in seminary, and I said to my wife, Grace, I said, listen, if we ever have a son, I want to name him after this guy. He just had such an unswerving passion for truth, even though he ended up getting exiled like five times uh, uh, by emperors when, when his ideas were unpopular. And amazingly, she somehow went for it when we finally did have a <laughs> son. <the fun. laughs>
2: you got her at a weak moment. <laughs>
0: yes, I did. And the funny thing is, you know, they, they called Athanasius, the contra, um, uh, contramundum. That is a man against the world. Mm. And he was very stubborn, you know, for the right reason, but, my son has certainly inherited inherited that stubborn streak, and <laughs> I just I I pray that he uses it for good. Yes, yes, we pray <laughs> that I you gotta,
2: use your yeah. use your powers for good, please.
0: Although I gotta I gotta say one funny story um, that I I recount in the book. I overheard him in an argument with his sister, and he said, "Listen, you need to listen to me. I was named after a very important Christian," and I said, "Hey, buddy." Are you sure you want to play that card on your sister, Mary? <laughs> <laughs> uh, good.
2: Oh, That's funny. We're talking about the new book called Just Show Up, A Guide for Exhausted Christians, How Small Acts of Faithfulness Change Everything. Um, Drew, you start out your book talking about, you know, kind of like a day in the life of you. Right now with three little kids. Well, actually, it was probably years ago uh, when your kids were even smaller. Um, and it is truly exhausting parenting kids. It, and when they get older, I hate to break this to you, get but it doesn't get any easier
4: Um, (laughs) and so,
2: and so that can really sap us of, you know, all of our great ideas about the impact we're going to make in our careers and the type of, you know, things that we're going to be able to explore and do or whatever you realize, at least I realize I just, I, unfortunately I don't have the capacity for it. Oh
0: yeah. I feel that right. Yeah. You, when you're younger, often you're a little more idealistic and you have more energy, um, and as you get older, uh, all these things get piled on you, right? When it's career, it's kids, uh, or age—you know, having aging parents—you know that starts too, and that's another thing. Um, and and good responsibilities from your church, from your community. Uh, but the the result is sometimes I know at this stage of life for my wife and I, by the time we reach bedtime and and finally convince the kids to you know brush their teeth and get into bed. Um, and they demand a story from me every night, which is all another thing. Anyway, but I am exhausted, <laughs> and it's like all I got time for is like Netflix, or energy for is Netflix. Yeah. And so yeah, it's a it's a tough season of life. And I think one thing that's been liberating for me too is to go, you know, it, it relates to this topic, but and I got a chapter on it in the book. But is you can't show up for everything. So if you are going to show up for the things that are important, you actually have to look at your schedule and go, hey, listen, what can I what can I get rid of here? <laughs> so that's been something I've had to do um, because you just can't say yes to everything either. Uh, especially in really demanding busy seasons of life. And my litmus test is this. It's pretty simple. I, I, I think of a commitment that I have and I think if this went away, would I be sad or relieved? What would be my primary emotion? And if the, re- if, if relief is the primary feeling I'd feel, I think maybe that is something that I can offload. Um, Especially, of course, if it's not something that's absolutely essential because there are so many important things clamoring for my attention at this stage of life. And you're right, wow, when it comes to kids, it's funny. We had all these plans. We're like, well, they're never gonna watch TV. You know, no screens, no sugar. You know, maybe once a week, we'll give them some sugar. And yet, (laughs) we're like, okay, they only had two hours of TV. That's that's pretty good, we'll call that good. (laughs) But again, showing up you know we're there we're, we're there and we're not perfect parents but man uh present beats perfect uh every time that's really at least good. I'm
1: hoping present beats perfect every time okay so good so I'm reading I'm reading uh, just show up how small acts of faithfulness change everything yesterday um, it's kind of funny because I was reading it yesterday afternoon uh, we were more than 20 minutes late for church yesterday drew I mean, and in the in the old days, I'd have been losing my mind. I I, I couldn't, you know. But we're like driving in, and I know we're going to be super, super late. And we showed into church. We kind of went in the back entrance, so we didn't have to march you, through. Did you
3: slink
2: in?
1: We did slink in a little bit, but <laughs> but but all was well. I mean, I mean, in the old days, I would have wanted to disappear and and sort of not show up and go. What's the point? We're already twenty minutes late. But you talk about that, about, you know, uh, some people want to be invisible, they want to disappear, but, but there is power, late or not, at least we were there.
0: Exactly. It's so much better, yeah, even if, and I'll just confess, when we make it to church on time, which we do sometimes, but it's a bit of a miracle, because all the stars have to align, everyone's got to get up on time, get ready on time, hopefully no major fights, we have a 25-minute drive to church, it's a whole thing, right? Yeah. But, like you said even if we're 10 or 15 minutes late and you kind of slink in and, and flash an apologetic smile at your fellow parishioners, Hey, you're there. That's awesome. That is way that, you know, you're doing a lot better than most folks who, who go to church, maybe even committed Christians these days, maybe go to church once or twice a month. And I'm not judging anyone, but man, when you can regularly show up and, and be with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, not only is it a benefit for them, but it's for you as well because it just kind of encourages you get that reset and it, and of course then when you have kids too you're you're training them in the faith. And so yeah, that's been something where I've just gone, hey, listen, if we just get there,
3: mm-hmm. even if
0: we're half an hour late, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be happy with that because uh, especially in challenging seasons of life where it's tough to get there, uh <laughs> because at least you're there and I think that's just a good principle. And I think it offloads a lot of false guilt too. Again, if you think you're not doing everything perfectly, you're somehow missing the boat. But man, I think we need to be a little easier on ourselves sometimes and just be happy with, you know, being present with incremental progress, you know, in all kinds of areas of our life. And again, reminding ourselves that God rewards even small little acts of faithfulness. Amen to that.
1: Okay, Drew. So I'm reading just show up and I envision you, I mean, you've been with us over the years, that you essentially in your writing, you are also wrestling with God. Is, that's fair to say, isn't mm-hmm. it?
0: It is. It absolutely is. And, and I've gone through seasons where, you know, I've, I've wrestled with a lot of doubts. I think what brings it to the, the forefront of a lot of our lives is when, not when it's just a philosophical question, but when you lose someone that you love or you see some awful tragedy I think of what's going on in the news in the world right now. I think that raises a lot of questions for a lot of people. And I do consider myself fortunate in the sense that I do have a bit of an outlet for it because when I encounter these, these, um, these doubts, I can, at least what helps me is, is kind of working them out through writing about it. Um, And what I encourage people to do, because I got a whole chapter about doubt in the book is don't stop talking to God. Like, even if you're going through a season where you're like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, you don't feel the presence of God, just keep talking. That's what I see in scripture. Like scripture has more audacious, you know, declarations of doubt and even anger towards God than you'll encounter almost online. (laughs) You know I mean? (laughs) You know, and, and, and so it's okay. God can handle that. But what I encourage people to do, or if they're in kind of a season of deconstruction and they're kind of stripping away some of the cultural things that that they realize have been added to their faith is to don't stop talking to God. Keep you know, join that great tradition of, of the Hebrew prophets who, even when they weren't sure if God was listening, they're like, God, where are you, right? Oh, Lord, will you forget me forever, as David said, right? Um, or, or Job, you know, making your complaints known to God, but hanging in there and keeping the conversation going. I think that's so mm-hmm. crucial. Just like a human relationship, you know, people will say a marriage is really in trouble, not when you're fighting. That's, that's hard. But when you stop talking altogether, right? That's the more dangerous thing. Amen. And I think that's true with our relationship with God as well. Excellent.
2: That's author Drew Dick. The new book just show up. How small acts of faithfulness change everything. Drew, it's just our first time talking about it. Can't wait to get more into the book. Really and good then stuff, chat Drew. Next time,
0: really good. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Always yeah. fun talking to you guys. Pleasure's ours.
1: Yeah, I mean, would it be good if we just all showed up? Yeah, and did our help. best. It would help. Thank you, Drew. It is that time. Friday afternoon, this or that. Mm. I've got a list. Yeah, i got a list. And off we go. Kath, this is the hurting edition yeah. of this or that.
2: Because of my back injury?
1: The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame.
2: Oh. The
1: Cleveland Museum of Art.
2: <laughs> well, I'm going to pick the Cleveland Museum of Art because since I hurt my back, I didn't make it to the Hall of Fame.
1: Following into a hole of despair, mm. falling into a hole of regret.
2: I th- I'd actually prefer despair over regret. Really? Yeah, I think so.
1: Getting COVID, having a bad back.
2: <laughs> uh, oh, COVID comes with so many things. No, I- I'm still picking COVID.
1: Falling down the basement stairs, <laughs> having a bad back. <laughs>
2: Oh, okay. Well, falling down the basement stairs was a six-month injury, and I almost died. So I'm picking the back.
1: Giving birth to your first child. (laughs) Having a bad back.
2: Oh, gosh. Okay. You're putting this in perspective. I will def. I mean, I had 22 hours of labor, so I'm going to pick the back.
1: (laughs) Looking forward to an anniversary trip. Looking forward to being pain-free from having a bad back.
2: Yeah, thank you. I love my anniversary trips, but... Much more even looking forward to being pain-free.
1: A massage. A restful night's sleep.
2: Oh. Well, I think the massage contributed to the restful night's sleep. I can't pick them both. It's... This or that. Massage.
1: A weekend getaway. Five days of steroids.
2: (laughs) I, I... I can't pick five days of steroids over a weekend getaway with my husband. That would just be wrong, ethically, morally, in every way. No, I'm picking the weekend away.
1: The patience of your employer. The patience of your husband.
2: Oh, both. Bo- I mean, I have the patience of, my, I will say my, the patience of my employer this really? week. I would. Yeah, I would. I mean, my husband's been very patient, but he kind of owes it to me because we're married.
3: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
1: and then to wrap things up, butter joint. Tesaro's.
2: Oh, what? That's so mean. It's the end of it that all. That doesn't have anything to do with what you were talking about.
1: It's the end of it. That's what you were doing. I, oh, those are my last two night. favorite burgers. I and
2: why? Tessaros? Hey. But that's hard.
1: The bad back edition. Of this or that. Is.
2: Speaking of the bad back. Hey. And the fact that I'm on day three of my five-day steroid pack. Uh, so I've, prepared, <laughs> I've prepared for you, John, the steroid edition. Hey, of this hey. who doesn't? It's going to go very fast, okay. and I'm going to eat while I do it. No, I'm kidding. Number one. Mm. Roger Clemens or Jose Canseco? Oh. <laughs> yeah, here we
1: go. This is the worst. Canseco. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm. <laughs> Mark McGuire or Sammy Sosa? Oh.
1: <laughs> Mark McGuire.
2: Raphael, because you didn't like the I fact just, that no. Sammy acted like it's, he didn't speak English. Right. Rafael Palmero or Manny Ramirez?
1: Oh, <laughs> Manny Ramirez.
2: Okay. Barry Bonds or the Russian Olympics? Oh. <laughs> oh.
1: USA, USA, I'm going with Barry Bonds.
2: Oh. Ryan Braun <laughs> or the poor schlub who took his fake urine sample to the testing site? <laughs> oh,
1: boy. The poor schlub. He was on the payroll,
2: and then he ended up. Fi- that was the worst. That's horrible. That was the worst. Horrible. Ryan Braun. Was and just-
1: and you blaming it on FedEx?
2: Oh, it's just number six. An asterisk section of the MLB Hall of Fame? Mm, yeah. Or banned completely from the MLB Hall of Fame?
1: No, I do believe that there should be an a- an asterisk section. Oh, you think? Of the time frame of the era? Yeah, I really do. Okay. It would make sense, and it
2: but because now they just act like it didn't happen. Right. Just,
1: and I think it has to come with an asterisk. I mean, I, I do know that Barry Bonds is the home run champion, but I believe it's it's false. So there has to be an asterisk for all those in the steroid era.
2: Okay. Number seven: When Canadian Ben Johnson lost his Olympic gold medal, <clears throat> or discovering Lance Armstrong was doping. <sighs> Boy, that was a shock. You remember that?
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. that hurt bad because he was a gigantic hero. Of yes, mine. he was. Lance yep. Armstrong. Yep. <clears throat>
2: you picking like I okay. am, yeah. Marion Jones or Lyle Alzado?
1: <laughs> and Marion Jones was a big I hero. I know. I mean, I'm picking Marion Jones. Mickey
2: Rourke or Nick Nolte?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, uh, Nick Nolte by far. I oh, mean, okay. uh, much more interesting to me.
2: If you took anabolic steroids, you'd be more excited to run like Usain Bolt or catch a ball like Antonio Brown?
1: Mm, man. It's hard to beat. You can never beat Usain Bolt. Yeah.
2: Uh, to throw a ball like Randy Johnson or hit a ball like Dave Parker.
1: Oh, I I'm not Dave saying Parker. Randy Johnson was doping. No. It's got to be the Cobra. Oh. I, love, I love Dave
2: Parker. All right. And the last one is, yeah. what would feel the absolute best? You on steroids being able to strike out a rod or competing in the Tour de France?
1: Oh, competing in the Tour de France by far and away. Fabulous this or that. What are Napoleon's papers doing in an old church in Sheridan? This is from our mm-hmm. friends at Next Pittsburgh. There's something called the Carpellis Manuscript Library Museum, which houses an eclectic collection of papers from Hemingway to Harry Potter, and it is in an old Catholic church in sheridan now the museum's gothic buildings which is reminiscent of notre dame built as the holy innocence catholic church in 1925 and um, as the area's catholic population shrank the parish was closed in 2016. Mm. so in 2019 the Carpellus manuscript library museum bought the building and opened the museum to visitors in 2023. now this is interesting david and marcia Carpellus are the founders of the Pittsburgh Museum, which is one of eight Carpellus museums around the country. After making millions through real estate, David Carpellus began purchasing rare manuscripts, many with connections to notable writers, politicians, musicians, and artists. The first museum opened in 1983 in Santa Barbara, California. The network expanded to 15 cities before David passed away in 2022. Uh, the Carpellus have an eclectic collection that includes Ava Perone's Dental Records, among more than a million historic <laughs> wow. documents. Okay. In the building's entrance in Sheridan is an exhibit of documents related to famous figures in literature. There are notes from C.S. Lewis that he probably referenced while writing the Narnia series, a quote scrawled by Ernest Hemingway on a small square of paper, an original drawing of Harry Potter by illustrator Mary Grandpre, and even a page from a handwritten manuscript of a Sherlock Holmes book. Hmm. is Now, the museum is free. It is open Monday to Friday from 11 o'clock until 5 o'clock Oh, in Sheridan.
2: So you can go see these things? Yes, you
1: can. Open to the public.
2: That's really cool.
1: In Sheridan. An eclectic display, which would mean if there's eight museums across the country. They have to be circulating these things on a regular basis. Right. Yeah.
2: Now, it doesn't say what papers of Napoleon's.
1: It does not. Mm Mm-mm. The headline yeah. says that, but uh, the the man the uh, the body of the piece from next P- Pittsburgh does not. But can you imagine how cool that would be? It's a little known, wow. A little okay, inex- uh, so
2: out of all those things, you, you mentioned at the end, there was the dr- original drawing of Harry Potter. Yep. There was an, a note uh, from Hemingway.
1: Yep. What um, else was there? A pay, a manuscript from Sherlock Holmes. And, um, oh, there's also, I'm sorry, there's other things here. Um, a letter from Albert Einstein, which he writes about one of his famous equations, a peace treaty from the War of 1812. Wow. And designs of ships from the Star Trek The Next Generation.
2: Get out! Yeah.
1: So very, very eclectic, right?
2: That's so cool. Okay, out of all those things, what would you want to see most? Uh, I
1: think I love Hemingway. I kind of want to see.
2: I didn't know you were Hemingway. Hemingway.
1: Fan. Oh, yeah. I want to see Hemingway on his, you know, I want to see his handwriting.
2: Okay. You? I That Albert Einstein letter. Fascinating. That's just f- with one of his equations in yeah.
1: it. In Sheridan. I mean, Plus
2: the Star Trek thing. I'm not even a Trekkie, but that's a very cool right. thing, one of the early drawings.
1: So it runs the gamut. I mean, it's not like some stuffy little, you know, sort of elitist place, right? Right. They're showing Star Trek and Hemingway and uh, Einstein and everything in between. Right. That's very cool.
2: You have, if you're a Hemingway fan, yeah. you have to see that Woody Allen movie. Uh, Midnight in Paris.
1: Oh, I saw it. Oh,
2: okay. oh, you did. I loved it. Oh my gosh! Yeah. it's so it's so
1: beautiful. It's yeah. my
2: it's in my top ten favorite movies really? ever. Yes, I just ab- did. You read A Movable Feast by Hemingway?
1: Um, years and years ago. Because that the I, movie's yes. based on that, right? I I have a <laughs> I mean, it's been so long. I have a faint memory of the book. Don't test me on it.
2: I don't. I've right. never read it.
1: Oh, you haven't. Okay. No, the only Hemingway I ever book. read was also uh, Rises?
2: No. What's the one about World War One?
1: Yeah, well, it's a true story of yeah. him being the ambulance driver. Yeah, the ambulance yeah, driver. Right, wow. yeah.
2: I can't think. Of... I'm sorry. That's the only one I read, and mm-hmm. I think it was in 10th grade. Okay. So I feel really ignorant. That's okay.
1: I can't remember. And I'm saying I love Hemingway.
2: Right. Okay. Let me bring up another bit of news. Okay. Did you hear about this ho- these hockey cards that were found?
1: Oh, yeah, this is cool.
2: Okay, so yeah. it's weird. So in, in somebody's basement in Saskatchewan, Um, They found a box of hockey cards. Now, when I say it's a box of hockey cards, you're thinking of like a little tiny box that's going to be, you know, in a candy store. This is like a box, like a huge box that you would use for moving. Mm -hmm. So it has 16 smaller boxes inside. And it's from 1980. Wow. Yeah.
1: So as a kid, I remember these boxes, the little individual boxes that whenever they would show up, then the store owner would take them out and put them on display, and then you'd buy them, whether they were baseball cards or hockey cards individually wrapped in a small box, which goes into a larger box. Right,
2: exactly. So when I say there are 16 boxes, yeah. that That's let me lot. just tell you how many packs that means. There are 760 in- unopened. The boxes is unopened. Wow. Okay, so the packs inside are we're guessing, also unopened, 1979-1980 yeah. OPG hockey cards. So that's cool. 11,000 cards Shh. in this box. And it's believed to be the only sealed case containing the coveted rookie card of Wayne Gretzky. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So um,
1: So inside the box, they don't know if there are Wayne Gretzky no. cards. They're, they're, the odds are that there's at least one. Right. I would imagine that's a valuable card.
2: Chris Ivey, director of sports auctions at Heritage, said we knew from the moment we heard this OPG case existed that it would get the attention of hockey card collectors worldwide. And they played an integral part in the success of this winter platinum night event with world record results. We're just so proud to have been part of presenting these treasures to the collecting world. And of course, what he's talking about is the fact that this box was auctioned off. For $3.72 million.
1: With the promise that there's more in there. Right. Right? Yep. So who found this box? Where was the box?
2: So it says uh, that the consignor's son stumbled upon the case behind stacks and stacks of other stuff in a basement. What? When the whole case was eventually brought to the baseball card exchange in the U.S. to be examined, that's when it was authenticated as the only known sealed box of its kind. The greatest unopened find of the 21st century (laughs) is what Heritage (laughs) is calling it. Of course, they're calling it that because they were trying to get the price up. Anyway, uh, the $3.72 million price, uh, I'm reading from Scripps News here, says it it makes it the most valuable case of unopened trading cards ever sold at auction. Shattered the previous record set in 2020 when a sealed case of 8687 Fleer basketball cards featuring the rookie card of Michael Jordan sold for Hmm, 1.8.
1: That's cool. So you have no connection to trading cards? None at all. Yeah.
2: None at all. That was a big thing for little kids, little boys particularly, right?
1: I still have some. Do you? Yeah, I mean, for birthdays or special events like Father's Day, my kids would get me a bir- uh, like a baseball card. So I have like Clemente cards. Do you? I have Stargell cards and I have Parker cards. Yeah. That's cool. They're not worth any. I mean, you know what I mean? It's so they're low they're value. worth
2: more or less than three point seven two million.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're a lot less. It's just sentimental, you know. Right. Just growing up. I mean, as a kid, you used to flip uh, baseball cards. Get together, all yeah, this, you know, yeah. Just flip them, flip them, and then you take the pile. So, like every kid, right? Anybody who loved baseball primarily, or later on football cards to a lesser extent, or basketball than hockey cards. I mean, every kid I knew had probably you know thousands or more of those in their closet somewhere. And then, of course, always the the mom doing the cleaning, right? Would just get rid of the cards, and one day you'd go home after you left the house and, and go, "Hey, uh... mom." Where they? Uh, oh, sorry. We cleaned up and the, those they, they picked those, and you go. Ah, uh, you feel bad for a minute, and then okay, that's all.
2: I know everybody's different. Yeah. But there's no place in my house that I don't know what's in it.
1: Oh, oh uh, yeah.
2: Like the the thought of of like stacks and stacks of stuff, and then you un- and right. there's a the hockey. Like I, I've cleaned my house so many Was times yeah. over the years that I, there's just nothing. There's nothing to discover.
1: There's a, still a little bit of mystery. Like, okay, my kid's going camping this weekend, mm-hmm. and he said to me, "Where is the, um, where's the, um, the, it's like a bottom piece for the sleeping bag, like a mat that you put on on, oh, the, yeah, on sure. the ground? Right? Where we've got we've got right. some of those. Where are those? And I was like, uh, that could be in your brother's cupboard. I uh, and it's, they're not in the basement. I know what's in the basement, so I know the basement. Like I know the closets, but so anyway. <laughs> So, they're find, still they're still. He mysteries. couldn't find them. Uh, my guess is maybe they got I don't know, they might have gotten pitched. Maybe.
2: See, that's the problem. Sometimes they so, get yeah. pitched.
1: So, then he had to go buy um, another one. A
2: farewell to arms. I said, that How many? Thank
1: days? you. Thank you, Lexi. Appreciate that. All right. Uh, hockey cards and the yep. museum in Sheridan, which is super cool. I'm going to stop by and check that out someday.
2: Yeah, I think that would be really fun. I'll take a break. i
1: will be back. Pittsburgh loves french fries so much that we eat them uh, on our salads. And this was a thing, right?
2: It's such, it, it, it's so delicious. If you've never done it, and I'm talking to people, especially who are streaming from other parts of the country, you can't, you can mock us, but it's delicious. It,
1: it truly is. And of course, those new to Pittsburgh might raise their eyebrows at the idea, but before long, they too acknowledge. Yes, I'm
2: telling you, if you had it, you would. No. Agree, you would be bought in.
1: Salty, crunchy, adds texture, the fries. There are uh, multiple restaurants who specialize in salads that, uh, of various sizes and textures that feature fries on their menu. These are local restaurants? Yes, they Where are. Where are you reading from? Uh, this is, again, from Next Pittsburgh. Okay. Thank you. The Next. Urban Tap on Carson Street in uh, Shadyside, Highland Avenue in Shadyside.
2: Oh, yeah. Uh You know, I've been there. I haven't had a salad, though.
1: The Urban Tap takes the tap part of its name seriously. Uh, They serve lots of um, 140 different beers. You'll find a Pittsburgh salad under the name Steak and Greens. Peppered filet tips are the protein served over mixed greens, cherry tomatoes, Danish blue cheese, Mm. herb ranch dressing. Bring it. The magic touch comes from the House Tots. These perfect potato cubes are formed from grated potatoes with a crunch on the outside and delicately delicious inside. It's worth ordering extras as a side dish, holy moly, stacked custom burgers and craft beer
2: uh that's the one in Oakland right
1: yeah,-huh, yeah, very nice. They're doing a ton of different salads, California Cobb, berry walnut, greek salad mm.
2: uh
1: the pittsburgh salad uh, the buffalo chicken, and the grilled chicken. Plain or Cajun include mixed greens, cool cucumbers, and tomatoes. It's Very on nice. Forbes Avenue. DeSoros. Mm-hmm. You were just there. Just
2: there last night.
1: Mm-hmm. Liberty Avenue, Bloomfield. And listen, we can't overstate this enough. If you haven't been there, please go. Please. Love it so much. Uh, sunny Jim's Tavern on Camp Horn Road right. in Kilbuck right. has been in operation since 1934.
2: My mom loved it there.
1: Current owners running the show for more than 40 years. A classic Pittsburgh salad gives diners a range of toppers to choose from that raise the dish beyond expectations. Salad starts with a bed of greens tossed with grape tomatoes, red onion rings, cucumbers, green green peppers, and radishes. The next layer is a mix of grated provolone and cheddar, happily melting under the hot fries. Mm -hmm. Next, you select a hardwood-grilled, fried, or blackened protein, chicken, shrimp, steak, or salmon. For a personal best Pittsburgh salad, the blackened salmon adds just salmon, just the right touch. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. at your mom's place.
2: Oh, she loved it there.
1: Industry Public House on uh, Andrews Drive in North Fayette. Both the menu and the decor at Industry Public House lean heavily on America's manufacturing past. Uh, Pittsburgh salad, Arsenal chicken salad, uh, sliced hard boiled eggs, I great like tomatoes. It. The standard mixed greens, red onion rings, cucumbers, cheddar cheese, uh, also a sliced grilled cheese. We believe the classic ranch dressing works best with this classic dish. The Union Grill, mm-hmm. longest standard, right. right? South Craig. South Craig in Oakland. They've been around for a long, long time, right across from the um, Carnegie uh, M- Museum. Offers one of the best Pittsburgh salads around. Toppers include a blackened or grilled half-pound salmon filet or chicken breast. Char-grilled sirloin steak or buffalo chicken. Lots of extras as well.
2: Yeah, and this is a really unfortunate time for us to be having this conversation. Sure is.
1: Shady Grove. On uh, Walnut Street in Shadyside. I don't know that. Heart of Shadyside's business district, Shady Grove Bar and Restaurant offers patrons two floors of joy.
2: That's Walnut Street.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Shady Grove uh, shakes up Pittsburgh's face with a twist. Pittsburgh salad tosses together romaine and iceberg, carrots and cucumbers, grilled chicken, coleslaw, grated cheddar, and waffle fries. Add the Berg touch we love so much. Mm Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd go to any of these places.
2: Seriously, why do we do this when it's right before the 5 o'clock hour? I'm
1: sitting here salivating. I am so
2: hungry.
3: Right, yeah. That's a mm-hmm.
2: great, it's it's an absolutely great thing. I was in Cleveland over the weekend. Um, bad and, back and all. Bad back and all. And I had uh, a salmon salad every night I was there. What? And I ordered fries on the side and just dumped them right on top.
1: Did anybody give you a little eyebrow?
2: Yeah, they did. What? And I said, I'm from Pittsburgh and you guys are missing out. See, that's
1: dangerous. Why? Because you identify yourself as a Pittsburgher while you're in Cleveland. I was fine with it. I
2: was proud of being a Pittsburgher. Proud of carrying the winning black and gold into that city.
1: (laughs) Into the Super Bowl-less city of Cleveland.
2: that is
3: exactly right.
1: right. Okay, that's our 4 o'clock hour. Stay with us. 5 o'clock hour. You don't want to miss it. Tim Ullhoff talks about Israel and his trip.
0: Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John
1: Hall and Kathy Emmons. Hey, good afternoon. Greetings. Thank you for coming along. It is the Friday, 5 o'clock. We can smell the bus leaving edition of The Ride Home. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Very nice. Is it
2: too early for me to tell you, John? Tell me what. Your weekend has begun. Oh,
1: fabulous. Thank you, sir. Here we are just a few minutes past the 5 o'clock hour. I would say in this studio, in this small corner of the world, all is right and well. After a tumultuous week for you, Kath.
2: Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much.
1: But uh, things are good.
2: Mm-hmm. My five-day steroid pack keeping me in good
1: health. Mm-hmm. You can, I get a flat tire. You can just pick up my car for I me. Could, right? I can. Right? Pick could. a baby up.
2: I'm basically at my apex.
1: <laughs> Your best life yeah. this second. Yeah. Lady. Yes.
2: Monday's going to be a real disappointment for
1: all of you. <laughs> Okay, so I'm, I'm reading, as, as we are wont to do, uh, and I saw an article that just crushed me because, of course, we all have a connection to this in one form or another. Uh, this is from um, The Telegraph. This is an English paper, of course. Obesity, this is the headline, is now a greater risk to global health than hunger, oh. study finds. And then they go into it, obesity is now a greater threat to global health and hunger. More than one in eight people in the world are clinically obese as the number passed one billion for the first time, it is now the leading form of malnutrition with the number of people considering considered underweight falling to below five hundred and fifty million
2: okay so fewer and Double. fewer fewer and fewer people thanks to all of the Incredible work yes. of nonprofits and individuals around the world for decades and decades. The number of mal- number of uh, people who have mal- suffering from malnutrition is getting lower. Plummeting. But the people who are becoming obese is getting greater and greater.
1: Because there's cheap fat food that's available for all of us, right? I mean, all mm-hmm. of us. We're, we're not immune here. We're here in, here in the United States. You just look around us, right? Being obese or underweight are forms of malnutrition. In both cases, Mm. because people are not getting the right nutrients, vitamins, and types of calories, they need to be healthy. Experts warned that children were paying the price for inaction on obesity by global leaders with under 18s, accounting for 159 million of those who are now obese. A further 879 million adults were considered obese, bringing the total to 1.04 billion out of the world's 8 billion people. So an
2: eighth of the world.
1: Is obese. Mm -hmm. The analysis by a global team of experts led by the Imperial College London revealed that the proportion of women who are obese has doubled since Mm. 1990 to almost one in five and tripled among men to around one in seven.
3: Oh, that's really sad.
1: Well, uh, I mean, awareness is the first step. Yeah. So that's a good sign, right? Right, right. That you look around because- I mean, look, there's fat, we're surrounded by fast food. We are not our parents' generation, Mm-mm. right? Our parents look different and ate different. Yep. And the things that are just in... Look at the plastic in our water. Not saying that that's the cause, right. but... It's a whole other ball game right. out here of what's in the environment and how we ingest and our limited physical activity.
2: Yeah, I think what you said about fast food—I don't like—I'm putting that in air quotes because I don't just mean you know going to Burger King or Wendy's or Chick Fil A no, or no, whatever. No, the process. Right, stuff. The process. Right when I I was uh, reading an article about weight loss uh, a couple weeks ago, and one of the things that they recommended in this particular article was only eat things that you've made
1: yes right
2: right so if you don't make it you don't eat it so that takes what chips out of the equation that takes crackers out of the equation right that takes bread in a bag out of the equation that you know what i mean like that takes all of those that you your chips ahoy Mm. you didn't make that your your peanut m&ms out that's your ice cream that, that you got just, from briars yeah like sir so i thought to myself that's really a great way to control your eating well
1: because our grandparents did that yeah because it, parents.
2: obviously it takes a lot of work to make bread mm-hmm. or to cookies. or to make cookies or to make dinner you know what i mean or to bake your own granola or make your own yogurt Or, you know what I mean? Right. And so instead of just going to a store, buying it, and eating it, you're actually putting effort into it, and a lot of times, you don't feel like making something, Mm -hmm. and so that means you're not going to eat it. Right. Because it's not laying around from a place you bought in the store.
1: In the name of convenience. Yeah. That's what's happened.
2: Yeah, that's what's happened. Mm -hmm. So you're right. We do sit around more also.
1: We're going to step away for just a few minutes. One of our favorite guests is back with us, Tim Uhlhoff. He himself... Went to Israel.
2: That's really interesting. With
1: a group of people where Tim was the only Christian in the group. And I'm sure he has stories to tell. Stick around. It's a Friday edition, the 5 o'clock hour, The Ride Home, for Pittsburgh's Christian talk. You ever travel in a group of strangers? Yes, I have. Right? You arrive at the airport and you...
2: It's weird. It makes it's nervous. It makes me nervous at first. Of course, first. it is right. You don't know what to expect.
1: You see the group gathered in the distance. You walk into it and introduce yourself Hi. and say, "Yeah, right." And then for the next week or ten days or, or two weeks or month, you're there. You're connected. Yep. This happens, I think, for a lot of believers. You're doing Christian missionary trips or whatnot, right? Well, Tim Muehlhoff is back with us. Dr. Muhlhoff is professor of communications at Biola University, author of several excellent books. We'll talk about that. But Tim, welcome back to the show.
4: Well, thank you for having me back after my uh, wild trip to Israel.
2: Okay, so you did what John was just talking about. You went to Israel with a bunch of people that maybe a month prior or a month and a half prior, you did not know. So for people who didn't join our conversation last month, uh, talk about what this organization that gathered you all together is, and what happened before you left.
4: So, uh, Kathy, it's called Bridging the Gap. It's by a, a man who's not a believer, but uh, is spurred on by the fact that we need to find ways of bridging the gap between us and people who think differently. He worked for the Obama administration and he was an attack dog and then had kids and thought, what kind of world am I gonna hand off to my kids? We need to change things. So he's Jewish, uh, not religious, he's a secular Jew. And when the terrorist attacks of um, October happened, uh, he said, I'm gonna pull together a group of very diverse people that I know who are all bridge builders And we are going to go to Israel, not to fix it, but to learn from it. And what can we bring back to communities? So here's what I would say. We weren't total strangers, because what happened is they did exactly what I did. When we got the list of names, I immediately did Google searches (laughs) and found out. So imagine them doing that with me. Yeah. Biola actually stands for the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. And you can read our doctrinal statement. It's all there. It's yeah. all there on our website. So imagine reading our doctrinal statement. They must have thought, I'm going to get on a plane with a Puritan. <laughs> I didn't know Puritans. I didn't know they still live. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, this guy, what? I mean, when you, I actually had my rhetoric class who was praying for me the entire time. I go, let's go read our doctrinal statement, but from the eyes of an outsider, mm. And we, we, we speak against evolution, we are pro-traditional marriage, Good. we are pro-gender uh, um, uh, aligned to this, your sex, we believe Jesus is the only way to get to God, we have a statement on hell, that if you reject Jesus, you will spend all of eternity in unutterable agony. Hmm. And this is all being read by people who don't really know me. So remember, this is Aristotle, Your reputation precedes you, Mm -hmm. and people base their first interaction based on your reputation. Well, guess what? My reputation was, I cannot believe this guy was invited. Hmm. Like, who is this guy? Well, Simon knows me, the leader, and we've worked together for the last three years bridging the gap between us and a very liberal college just down the road opening up lines of dialogue. So guess what? My reputation with Simon was really good, but now they're they're meeting me going, why would we invite somebody that I think I disagree with this guy religiously, politically, and socially? Yes. Now, imagine getting on the plane with those people and spending 10 days where you leave um, your hotel at 8 in the morning and don't get back until 10 p.m., Mm -hmm. and you're on a bus visiting hot spots within the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Wow. Go. 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 You tell me what to do.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Tim, now, you know, you've written a couple of books with winsome in the title, which in our interaction with you, I would say, undoubtedly, you are a very winsome person. So you introduce yourself to that group. I I would say within a matter of minutes, any weirdness they would have had about you, reading about you would melt away just by your mere presence.
4: Wow, John, I need to record that and play it for my students. (laughs) It's the truth. Before every class. No, so let me say this, John. I would say uh, Kenneth Burke was right. In the 1960s, when the wheels were coming off our country, he said, listen, every speaker has a decision to make. Do I go towards our differences, the division, or do I seek to build identification unity? So my game plan was, okay, what are all the ways I can identify and affirm what, remember, they're all bridge builders. Now, there was a a, a rabbi, uh, there was a a Muslim, there was a staunch atheist, there's pro-Palestine, pro-Israel, and I'm looking for ways to identify with each person, where can I affirm uh, the things that we have in common and not jump in to our differences, Because I don't think the communication climate could have sustained it. Remember the book of Proverbs, a word spoken in the right circumstances Mm. is compared to fine jewelry. And sometimes we just want to go in and proclaim truth, but ignore what Paul said, truth and love. And what Peter said, yeah, give a reason for the hope that is in you with all gentleness and reverence. So I had to build up the gentleness and reverence part before I could get, but it was a documentary. Don't forget that. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. It's a documentary. So (laughs) so you're
2: you're being filmed while you're doing all this.
4: Oh, Oh, Kathy. So Simon kind of stirred the pot on many occasions because he knows me. He's been to Biola. He's spoken in our chapel, (laughs) being interviewed by the president of Biola. So he knows the questions to ask. Sure. And so he's stirring the pot a little bit of the differences. And there's a camera right there. And I got to tell you, I'm thinking like a madman as I'm speaking, going, okay. what do I want to be on the documentary? What would I say if there wasn't a camera?
1: No, wait, Tim. Uh, Let let me interject here to our audience, because like myself, you as well, a former addict, uh, former actor, (laughs) 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 a little slip of the tongue. Oh, my word. A former actor.
4: reputation? (laughs) What in the world?
1: So now there's a camera in front of you as a former actor. That's aphrodisiac.
4: Well, I was terrified, though, John. Of course. It, it was, it, I would have really preferred, and we even talked about it as a team of 15. This really changes the dynamic. Yeah, of course. It a camera really always does, does, right? Yes, it of course. Does. It does. It's the worst. And I had, you know, Biola University gives me certain freedoms, but they're, we're a confessional school. So you can't speak against the doctrinal statement. So I think Barry, my president, who wrote a book, by the way, called Love Kindness, uh, i think he would say yeah br- you can build bridges but there's a limit to the bridge building like there's a limit what you can give on and so i uh we had a great conversation um when with the cameras rolling uh my muslim friend would want to say uh i don't i'm so frustrated because muslims and christians basically believe the same thing mm. we 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 support the virgin birth of mary we support Jesus' miracles, we support blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, Saad, here's one miracle you don't buy, and that is the resurrection of Jesus, which is, by the way, the central miracle of my faith tradition. Yep. And you don't buy that. And he laughed, and he goes, well, you're right. And I said, okay, why? And he said, well, because the Quran uh, doesn't mention it and actually speaks against it. And I said, and why do you accept the Quran over the Bible? And he goes, well, because the Bible's been corrupted. I said, okay, Saad, that's an assertion, not an argument. Mm. So, by the way, I I can't just assert that it's historically accurate, the New Testament, but I'd like to make that argument that it was Jesus that died that day, not Judas. Mm -hmm. So let's have that. Let's have that right now. Let's do it. Now, I have to walk. I was on the debate team, right? I have a pit bull (laughs) Thrown down. Yeah. That like, hey, let's do it, dude. I'm on camera, so John, you're kind of right. <laughs> I'm on camera, and I'm winning this one. Yeah. But what is good for the cam? Let me say this as clear as I can. What is good for the camera is not good for the community. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. true, so true. And we need to lay that on the altar to say, I'm really going to do neighbor love right now, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to grandstand for the Christian community. I'm okay. not going to speak in a way. That always buttresses my credentials with the conservative, give me the freedom to to be winsome, to be creative. Uh, Let me borrow from Jesus, to be a friend of sinners Mm -hmm. and to have fellowship dinners with them. And yes, Jesus got criticized. And yes, you're going to get criticized if you honestly try to do bridge building with different groups, Your, your commitment to the conservative Christian community is going to be brought into question immediately. Why did you not set them straight? And I'm saying because my goal was, one, to understand the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and then second, to form communities so that we can go back and help communities in the United States. My primary purpose wasn't to evangelize everybody on the bus. Right. Boy, I'm telling you right now, let's see how tenure works hmm. at Bible, right? Because yeah. <laughs> even that statement, and I get why some people look at that statement and say, okay, what do you mean? Come on. Evangelism's crazy important. Yeah, but it's time we redefined what evangelism is. Again, right? There's pre-evangelism, there's yes. there's neighbor love, there's showing people you love them by actions, which is what the New Testament re- New Testament church really did with Rome, my goodness right? Helping during times of plagues and famine. So you earn the right to be heard. Let me just say it that way. And that comes slowly. And it comes slowly. You can't force it. And the church has no patience for earning the right to be heard. Mm -hmm. We're
1: talking with Tim Eulhoff from Biola University, just back from Israel, where a group of people of all different faith traditions joined Tim, uh, looking at the Israeli-Palestinian war. So Tim, uh, up close and personal, Israel, Palestine. What did you
4: see? Well, let me say this: Um, uh, We went to Gaza, and we went to the kibbutz that was attacked um, Hmm. after Hamas destroyed the command center. the, the The fence that protects Israel. I mean, if a bird hits it, they know exactly where the bird hit the fence. But, but Hamas. Used drones to destroy the command center, so Israel was blind for a long period of time. So they basically just backed a truck up over the fence and attacked a kibbutz, which is a community, mm-hmm. raising their kids together, you know, kind of socialist. Uh, and they they butchered these people. Let me just say it as clearly as I can. They didn't just shoot them. Yes. They butchered these people to make a statement. With glee. And we were invited the, to the kibbutz, and then the Nova Festival. Uh, Israel believes Hamas didn't know the festival was happening. They stumbled on it. A thousand people celebrating and singing. And what they did to those people is horrific. So if you want to understand the anger of Israel, to say, do not criticize us going after Hamas. Do not. Because this has got to stop. So you get their anger. Mm -hmm. But then when you meet Palestinians who have lost brothers and sisters and grandfathers, um, babies, you realize the pain and the anger and then add to that how many centuries of history you get an intractable conflict. And that's why we were there is what do you do with an intractable conflict? And and what, what can we do in the United States not to get there?
2: We need and to take a break. Purpose. We need to take a break, Tim. Can you stay with us for a couple? Sure. That's terrific. We're talking about the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict uh, because Tim was on site for it with a bunch of people with a lot of different perspectives uh, bridging the gap. We're going to continue to talk about it. Dr. Tim Pulhoff from Biola University next on The Ride
1: Tim Puhlhoff is with us. He is just back from... A trip with um, Israelis and Gazas looking uh, firsthand at the conflict in Palestine uh, with a group of people who uh, were not believers, but Tim is a believer. And so there's a firsthand look at the conflict and what that looked like personally and you know, from a national or an international perspective. Tim?
2: All right, Tim. So you talked about um, the horrific nature of the Hamas attacks and you talked about uh then moving over and talking to Palestinians who had lost brothers and grandfathers and children uh in the conflict and how do you make peace between groups that so historically have devastated one another um i guess the bottom line is were were their minds changed were were any of you did any of you end up in a different position than you started
4: oh i would say yes Uh, Some became entrenched. Uh, I was was pro-Palestinian heading in, and now I'm really pro-Palestinian. I was pro-Israel heading in, and now I'm really pro-Israel with the rage I feel. (laughs) So some people got entrenched. There was a bunch of us in the middle, and I, I was very clear to the organizer, I don't know a ton about this conflict. And he said, that's great. Learn as you're going through it. Uh, So I would say two things I took away from this trip. One, um, we need to acknowledge a person's pain before they'll ever listen to us. Mm. So if you deny the pain of Israelis, you have no hope of talking to them. If you deny the pain of Palestinians, um, you have no chance of talking to them. In the American context, if we don't acknowledge the pain of the trans community, we have no chance of ever having meaningful conversations. If we don't understand the pain of many of our Black brothers and sisters, uh, we will never never make headway, right? If we jump in and talk about systemic racism and not acknowledge the pain that gave rise to Black Lives Matter, it's like running up in a traffic accident, popping your head in the window and saying, see, you should have been wearing Mm seatbelts. There's, there's a time and a place, and the whole book of Proverbs is about that, but you've got to sit in the pain with people before you can ever begin to talk about um, maybe disagreements or a different perspective. Second, this is going to sound really weird. Take this in the right way. We laugh for 10 solid days. I bet. Mm. And it, it, it was uh, a little bit gallows humor. Uh, it was inside jokes that nobody else would get. And maybe they'd be just a little bit horrified uh, to hear. But but you have to be able to laugh at yourself. Like guys, they made, I mean, they knew I was a conservative Christian and the jokes were coming. Yeah, right. right? And, right. and just to be able to laugh and then give it back. Um, it's called fatic Communication. It's the it's the seemingly small conversations you have that set up the big conversations. So there was one woman. I deeply respect her. Deeply care for her. But my goodness, we disagreed. But her dad graduated from Ohio State, and I'm Michigan, John. I'm Michigan. We are the we are the national champions of football until the ncaa strips us for cheating we are the <laughs> national <laughs> champions and my kids rightfully hate ohio state with a biblical hatred right. okay <laughs> so we joked non-stop why because i came with my michigan gear and she came with her ohio gear hmm. and we would strategically wear <laughs> these sweatshirts <laughs> and hats but you know what I mean? it was a release bell yeah fun and 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 I would say my biggest observation of the American context is we don't have a release valve. Whenever we talk, it is Mm. full, emphatic communication, pounding the table. There's no humor in the issue we're talking about. And it would even be disrespectful for laughter to happen when we're talking about something as important as X, Y, and Z. And I'm just saying some psychologists call it the social lubricant of our interaction is you can only go so hot at each other until you can just let it the steam run off. And we found a million ways to let the steam off. Mm. My friend, who's a Muslim, is bald. And uh, we would we had bald jokes 24-7. I mean, how many times can you say the joke when we're going to have a picture taken? How 's my cranium looking right, right, You know what I mean, right, right. but those small little laughter things uh, really helped bring the group together mm. um, and have a little bit of a release of the pressure that would build up <laughs> when you 're having all these conversations with each other
1: yeah, so it sounds like at the end of the day there was mutual respect in the group, even though there were sharp disagreements, but was there'm sure there 's no consensus. But the idea of seeing the horror of war and trying to understand it and having empathy and compassion for all sides involved, that was the goal. And in many ways, it sounds, Tim, like you achieved that.
4: I do think we achieved uh, cohesiveness within the group. Now, short term, this is 10 days. Can the group hold together? Mm -hmm. As we all start to write about it, as we all start to talk about it, And and by the way, we're not getting the daily touch points anymore. Now, we just met via Zoom and we're going to continue meeting via Zoom. But when you don't have the touch points, John, then that is where um, COVID killed us. Mm -hmm.
3: Right. Because we were
4: separated. And I'm all, listen, I teach at a Christian university, make no bones about it. I love being at Biola. But listen, we need to be with our fellow neighbors and having regular touch points. So that means, I don't put my kids in a Christian basketball league. We we put them in a a secular league where the coach uses language every once in a while. That really bugs us. We we need to find these touch points of being in the world, but not being influenced by it. But we need to have these touch points everywhere within our communities.
2: Man, that's fascinating. I wish we had more time to break this down, Tim. Really great job, Tim. Really, really. I have some questions I'm going to write down uh, for our conversation next month because
4: I'm already looking forward to it. Thank you so much. I would lo- I would love to to process more. Yeah,
2: that's great. That's Dr. Tim Mulhoff, professor of communication at Biola University. Check out several of his books, including "Winsome Conviction: Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church."
4: I have a new one coming out called "A Recovering Addict." Uh, <laughs> it's for, I'm going to ask John to do the foreword.
1: <laughs> I want you to dedicate it to me. <laughs> you
3: Thank you. You better be a disclaimer. Okay. Bye. <laughs>
0: It's been another week. That means it's time for John and Kathy's Week in Review. What was everyone talking about this week?
1: Well, in my circles, people are talking about Navalny's funeral.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: the, the Russians' inability to provide the body and the, the, the widow. The Russian government's was, inability. The, the widow and the mother and all that pain. All laid out on an international stage. What a horror and a disgrace.
2: And then today, seeing the thousands that showed up for his funeral, literally taking their life and future in their hands just to be there.
1: Without a doubt, yeah. And here locally?
2: Uh, Yeah. Bill Hillgrove. Bill Hillgrove, right, retiring as the voice of the Steelers. I also say that uh, people are talking about things at the border, which are reaching historic historic levels of terrible. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: What was a
1: conversation that made you think? Tuesday at 510, uh, Reverend J. Slocum uh, was with us. Uh, unlocking the third commandment, much more than taking the Lord's name in vain. Hmm. It goes deeper into that, into how we look at the world, how we see ourselves as followers of Jesus, our intent and purity, and all those things together. So, oh, that sounds like an easy, I'm just not going to swear. Well... Truly, uh, if you look at the Third Commandment and look at it from a cultural mindset first and see where we are in the culture and then see yourself as the product of truth and love of Jesus Christ, it's a lot deeper dive. Jay Slocum, Tuesday, 510.
2: Sorry, I missed that. Yeah, it's good. I picked our conversation yesterday with Bruce Antkoviak, a law professor from St. Vincent College. It was yesterday at 535 Mm -hmm. on... prosecutors in the US not disclosing info that would be favorable to defendants which is clearly against the law but according to bruce this is happening at at record pace rampant some lawyers are calling it a, an epidemic in law right now and you know i never really thought about this as an issue but he brought up several cases of people who had been incarcerated with faulty evidence when when the police officers or the law team clearly knew they had exculpatory evidence um, to support the, the innocence of the defendant and did not bring it up.
1: What are you reading? Maybe a few weeks ago, Frederica Matthews Green joined us, and she recommended a book called Laures, L-A-U-R-E-S. And it's a novel about being a fool for Christ. It's a piece of fiction written by a Russian, uh, Eugene mm. Vodalesin. Uh,
2: you know, how, how, Eugene, what?
1: <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Laurus L A U R U S, excellent. Very slow reading. It's very dense. Okay, but um,
2: but that's what you're in. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, I'm still in Paris by Edward Rutherford. I mean, I'm taking it's been this, six months. I, I not six months. It might be. But once I hurt my back, I couldn't. I I was just. I couldn't have pay attention it's to anything. Out. It was terrible. <laughs> right. But I'm still in it, and it's it's getting really good at very this point. Good. So I'm right. excited.
1: What did you eat? Marabella chicken.
2: Oh, listen from the Silver Palette. cookbook. Yes, exactly. Yes, with green olives prunes. and prunes. Yeah. And you, capers, and, and garlic, bay leaf.
1: Yep. White wine, brown sugar.
2: I love I haven't had that in years. Neither
1: that used to be my wife's one of our favorite dishes. And so she made a meal for somebody this week and she offered them a menu of choices. They chose that and we got so then we yes. Ha, she made some for us. Was it so Oh it's incredible.
2: It's such so a weird combination of things and it's so good. It's so
1: good. I mean she was making it the other day and I could smell it and I was like,
2: Oh my now god. Now I want to make it. I haven't Marabella thought of that in so long. It's mm-hmm. so good. Well, I was uh, in Cleveland for the weekend on a little getaway with my husband, and we went to the Market Garden Brewery mm-hmm. in Ohio City. And, I mean, he says the beer was great. I'm not, I don't, I hate beer. I don't drink. Um, but he loved that. But I thought the food was terrific. Nice. It was really fun, and I did order a salad with salmon on it and a side of fries <laughs> so I could put my fries in my salad.
1: Go Pittsburgh. What did you watch? I saw two excellent movies this week mm. in the theater. Uh, the Taste of Things with Juliet mm. Binoche, a late 18th century time frame about food. There's a romance as well off the charts. It's playing still right now at the Manor Theater, but weird show times, like three o'clock in the afternoon. Mm. The Taste of Things. I also saw a film called Perfect Days with his, um, a Wim Wenders movie. Mm. Um
2: Wow. Is he still making movies? Yes, he is. Is he really? Wings of
1: Desire. This Perfect Days is a...
2: He has to be an old man by now. I'm sure he is.
1: It's a German-Japanese co-production because Perfect Days is about a guy who cleans the public toilets in Tokyo Uh. and how he looks at the beauty in the world. Off the charts. Both those films. The Taste of Things and Perfect Days.
2: Wow. Okay, well, um, I watched uh, Made in Italy, which is a Liam Neeson film that he made with his son, Michael. Hmm. And it's the story of it's it's basically the story of what happened to the Neeson family, but told in a fictional family. Um, And uh, it's the story about uh, a family that owned a house in Italy. And then um, uh, it was a mom, dad and son. And the mom was tragically killed and the dad couldn't handle it couldn't figure out how to process his grief they just shut the doors on the house and left and of course the the relationship between father and son deteriorated greatly and they end up back in the house in italy through through s- several different scenarios and they have to confront the loss of mom the loss of wife and the loss of relationship between father and son. Mm-hmm. So it's actually, and you know, we know that Liam Neeson lost his wife, Natasha Richardson, and uh, Michael Neeson's mother. And so it was fascinating to see them as actors portray something that they as people live through. Wow. And uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful little film. Lost we, in Italy. You can watch it on Netflix. Thank you. What was
1: the best news you heard this week? Kath is better. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, yeah. tell you, when Kath Woo! called me and said, "Yeah, exactly. I hurt my back. If you've ever had a bad back, you oh. know, it can be a journey yep. that takes on epic proportions. It clouds your life." So for Kath to hurt her back badly mm. and then to be upright and walking in here again, that's
2: excellent. I know moves. that's I got to be honest, that's the best news if, I heard without this week. I'm so
1: grateful. You, thank goodness for modern I medicine, know it. right? What have you been listening to? Oh. Check this out. 1972
3: The last under morning, the sunshine
1: It's the Allman Brothers.
2: Is it really?
1: From the album Eat a Peach. In this song, I mean, in 1971, Dwayne Ullman died in a motorcycle accident in the midst of production of this album. Mm. So Brother Greg, in his grief, penned most of the songs about Dwayne, and this song is about that. I'm not wasting time. I see what's before me, what's happened. It's a fabulous album. Mm. 1972, the Allman Brothers.
2: Well, as it goes every week, John, I was listening to something different. Of
1: course you were. In a... week
2: it's trombone shorty playing the trumpet is he in town this week tonight are you going yep oh ho, ho. <laughs> that back and all super excited
1: will you sit in a chair
2: i will sit in a chair good i will sit in a chair trombone shorty with lauren daigle that's called what it takes and if we're lucky he'll play it tonight
1: 1st, 1932. This is the anniversary of the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby. Mm -hmm. Now, you may not know this story, but it's one of the most famous stories probably in the world at some point. 1932, of course, Charles Lindbergh, he was the most famous man in the world, having just recently flown from New York to Paris. By himself on an airplane, I mean, shattering all aeronautic records and uh, ushering in the age of international travel, essentially, he married Ann Morrow, and they famously had a baby, little baby Lindy. And this little baby was about almost two years old, living with his parents in New Jersey. Someone in the middle of the night put a ladder up against the house and stole the baby. The crime scene contaminated a few hours later which led to the mystery of one of the most heartbreaking and mm. horrific crimes in American history.
2: Mm. Well, my family has a, a strange intersection with this case because in 1938, the FBI came knocking on my grandparents' door. What? Um, Here in Pittsburgh? Here in Pittsburgh. Because my dad, at the age of two, looked a lot like the Lindbergh baby,
1: apparently. They thought he might have been the Lindbergh baby? Yes.
2: They thought my my dad was the Lindbergh baby because of the fact that, and the reason the FBI showed up is because my grandfather uh, had a Polish name, Stanley Bletchars. However, he was a, a big time Sandlot baseball player and pretty famous in this region. And he went by Shaner Blake. Blake. that was his baseball name hmm. um, because nobody could say Bletchars, right sure. outside the polish community shaner shaner, shaner blake. blake um and so the fbi was disturbed by the fact that this man had changed his name
3: mm-hmm.
2: and uh was living uh, you know kind of under the radar he said so to speak in this little tiny polish ghetto really? right in pennsylvania I think it
1: like fairly common a lot of people in that era
2: yeah and at, but my dad looked a lot like the Lindbergh baby. So anyway, the FBI came. Knocking, I, have, I have a picture here. The FBI came knocking when my dad was about that mm, age.
3: He does look how cute um, he is.
2: And it was a big deal. It was there was a no lot. No yeah. it was.
1: So how long did the investigation in your family well, go on?
2: Now my uncle says uh, he. My uncle wasn't even around at the time. He wasn't even born yet. Yeah. Um, but this from is your
1: dad's brother, younger brother, right?
2: Uh, but what he says is it was resolved within six months. Still. But, but that was a long time. And of course, you can imagine for Polish immigrants to be confronted by the FBI.
1: For anyone. For
2: anything would would like be mind blowing. Was it? And of course, they were worried that somebody was going to take their son away.
1: Of course. Was it in the newspaper?
2: It, like, I don't know the answer to that.
1: Or was it, you know, on the hush and hush? Right. You know, That's a good question. You would imagine. What would that have been like? The local paper saying FBI arrives. Now, Your Graham, she was known in the community. Yeah.
2: Well, and she was known because she was the daughter of the one you're thinking of, who was very known in the community.
1: So all these different connections. All these
2: different connections, right. Hmm. So anyway, it's kind of a weird story. But every time the the anniversary of the Lindbergh baby Baby comes up, I think of what happened with my dad.
1: March 1st, 1932. Mm -hmm. It's a heartbreaking story, of course. And, you know, I mean, every mother, every father held their babies a little closer because of what happened. Uh, in that community in New Jersey And so that
2: was never discovered what mm-hmm. happened to the baby
1: People were executed because of this you know, Put to death you know, Known as, as the known kidnappers But of course it's still shrouded in mystery So every year March 1st It comes up I often think about you know The weirdness of the story And you would think today with all the, you know, the modern you know, Forensics and DNA and all those right. things That there would be some resolution to the case But there really never has been Anyway wow. such is life God bless them all.
2: All right, so it's time for the weekend in Pittsburgh. Oh, so yeah. uh, there's a lot that you can find. Just look at it. I'm going to be at a Trombone Shorty tonight.
1: Are you? I'm
2: super excited about mm-hmm, that. Had mm-hmm. tickets for a long time. Yep, yep. Um, so there's you know you can be at the FIP at FIPs. You can uh, be you know hearing music. You can watch the Pens. Right. Uh, Pitt basketball is going to be back at home in Oakland.
1: Pittsburgh Record and CD Convention as well. Oh, okay. yeah, at um, Perry Highway in Westview.